I wanted to start this evening by uh, relating a an incident that happened, um, not something I observed, but something that I was told about. I was uh, on a train traveling down south a few weeks ago, and and the person I was sitting with um, struck up a conversation talking about using mobile phones on the trains. And I don't know what your experience is, but my overriding experience is that it's, it's disappointing the way people use them. Um, and I, I, I'm really surprised, actually, how, how it's evolved. And um, I, I wouldn't have thought it would have happened this way, that people having these loud conversations and kind of intruding on each other's space and bits of Led Zeppelin going off or foghorns or downloading your own ringtones and then displaying them to the whole carriage. And incidentally, I, when I was in Japan, I, uh, I was really inspired to see how nobody dared use their phone in the carriage. They would, everybody would get up and walk to the little in-between area between the carriages and, and talk there. And there's a sign as you get on the carriage on the train is a sign, please remember to put your phone on vibrator mode. Anyway, we were talking about this general area and, and the person related to me a situation where they had been on a train and I think it was one of the silent carriages. But anyway, there was somebody down the far end just was having endless conversations, you know, ringing different people and talking really loudly and, and it was getting, you know, getting annoying for people and but he was carrying away and really into his conversations. And well then, the, the mood of the carriage changed dramatically because there was a pregnant lady on the same carriage and she started to um, go into labor. And she started to kind of have a baby <laughs> right there on the carriage. So what do you do? Of course, you, you, know, you bring somebody up and you get some help. And so they, of course they went to this chap who with his mobile phone, can I have your phone? We need to ring a doctor or somebody. And, and it turned out the phone was a fake. He was just doing it all for show. <laughs> well, as it happened, the guard came along. Well, you know, it had a good ending to it. The baby was born. Everybody was happy. Everybody that is except for this guy who was caught out uh, using his um, artificial mobile phone in a, in a very... Um, artificial way. So I spent quite a bit of the rest of the journey on the train reflecting on you know, what is it that causes us to invest so much energy in our, in our image? I mean, how embarrassing. Poor guy. I really felt for him. I, I hope he recovered and I hope he learned something from it. And Certainly, I, well, I don't imagine there's anybody around here getting bound with a a uh, artificial mobile phone, but I think probably to some degree most of us can relate to the story where we get caught out promoting ourselves, promoting ourselves, or are we promoting our image of ourselves? We invest so much energy in having an image, an agreeable image, 
and we polish it and we preen it and we look in the mirror and check it out and even if it's being all scruffy and looking like you don't care that's the image that we're trying to create or or a spiritual image like a Buddhist monk and you can you know, how well do my robes fall? Do they fall in nice pleats? <laughs> Am I looking a nice colour? Yeah. Of course, the uh, the tradition of giving up the normal householder's clothes and putting on robes is aimed at actually uh, undoing our identification with the image of ourselves. But all of us, I'm sure, can speak for the difficulty there is in growing out of that image, letting go of the image, even becoming a monk, you can spend a lot of time fussing over what your robes look like and what people think of the way you appear. And it's very painful for all of us. It takes a lot of energy. It's very energy extravagant. It's like a mannequin. We've got to keep puffing up, pumping up this this image so that it looks all right. afraid of being caught out and when we are caught out how do we feel? How does it feel when we have been presenting ourselves as something that's not true? We feel ashamed. Now I I don't mean guilty, that's, that's, that's something else. But we feel ashamed, we feel there is something inappropriate, there's something dishonest in presenting ourselves as an image for others to be impressed with. And it's it's painful and regrettable. Now what do we do about it? And how do we get into this state? I mean why why are we in there? I mean you know if we if we know we're okay, if we know that we're all right, I mean why would we worry about promoting ourselves? You know, getting around looking like this, of course, we attract a lot of attention. Some of it's very nice and and uh, people are very respectful, but not always. I and mean, sometimes, like when I was in New Zealand and somebody, I was walking down the street and somebody threw uh, an egg at me and a splat and this kind of egg all down my robe. And well, that's not very nice. And I felt quite hurt. No, it was actually, it wasn't a brick. Now, if they'd thrown a brick at me, it would have been, you know, really bad news. But as it was, it was an egg, and it, it, and I went. What actually was offended was the image I have of myself. It wasn't me. I mean, I know who I am. I know that you know I hadn't been breaking my precepts. I hadn't been disparaging or anybody or misbehaving or being you know, doing things that are illegal or whatever. <clears throat> I hadn't done anything bad and. And these guys just figured, oh well, there's a Harry Krishna throwing egg at him. And, How are you going, Harry? Splat. And and then I got all indignant and, and upset. It took me several hours to to uh, settle down again. But what was it? Was it me that they were throwing an egg at? And was it me that was really offended? It was the image. And, and so. We can struggle enormously over promoting our images, polishing our image, and, and looking after our image, and being afraid of what might happen to it, and then when something does happen, suffering the consequences. So it's uh, really certainly appropriate to 
stop and look into it. Now, what's really going on? And how do we get into the state anyway? Well, it seems to me that the uh, this self-image that we have is actually very normal. It's something that really gets established by about the age of seven. And we have a, an idea of ourselves. There's me, and there's mum, and dad, and, and the world. And before that, there's, there's not such a clear sense of differentiation. But by about the age of seven, there's, there's some sort of structure in place whereby we feel like this is me and we you know we have an idea of who we are I mean, we know our name and we can tell people our name and this is me in other words the ego is is established and that's a healthy function that's perfectly normal however as we grow up what would be ideal would be is if we were actually educated to come to understand the nature of this Structure. This is an approximation of me. This is a virtual me. This is an idea of me. This is a creation of me. This is an image of me. And it's functional. <clears throat> because of this, we can get around and we can, we can relate with other people and there's nothing wrong with having an ego. And sometimes people get into spiritual life and mix in Buddhist circles and then they demonize the ego and as if the ego is, is some sort of failure. Well, you know, if we don't have an ego, we really are in trouble. It's not the ego that's the problem. It's not having a sense of who we are. It's not having an image of ourselves that's a problem. It's the way we relate to it that's a problem. You know, we grow up and at the age of seven onwards, we get fascinated with ourselves, more and more fascinated with ourselves. We look in the mirror more and more and, and we shape ourselves and... We're not actually being ourselves, inside ourselves, we're, we're abstracting on ourselves, we're imagining ourselves, and we're creating this image of ourselves. And, and as life goes by, if we're not careful and we're not properly educated, we, what happens is that we actually believe this is who we are. This idea of who we are, we actually think this is who we really are. And so if somebody insults us, even though they don't know who we are, they don't know anything about us, we can take it very personally and get very hurt, very upset. But it's not us, that they, they don't even know who we are. They don't know me. But the virtual me, the idea, it conflicts, what they've done conflicts with the idea of who I am. And so we get hurt. And we can suffer quite terribly because of it. So this is true for all people. This is not just something that happens for a few neurotic individuals. This is something, a task that all of us are faced with, is the coming to understand this idea of who we are for what it really is. So we're not fooled by it anymore. And this is very much what meditation is about. When we hear the teachings that it is possible to be free from struggle, it's possible to not be caught in this endless striving to become something all the time and fighting ourselves and being afraid of ourselves and full of anxiety. We hear the Buddhist teaching, it is possible to be free from all this. And then we embark on the, the practice of Buddhism, take up meditation, and, and what's suggested is that... Yeah, 
take the meditation object like the sensation of the body breathing or or a theme like the theme of loving kindness or or a mantra or the sound of silence whatever the meditation object might be and we hold our attention on it we hold our attention with just counting the breath or feeling the sensation of the breath or listening to sound of silence we hold our attention and steady our attention but the attention keeps drifting off going back into memories often to fantasies of the future thinking about this and he said this and she said that I'm going to do this and and what is it all what is what is all this carrying this is all the drama of our of our interaction with our self-obsession this is really playing with the image of ourselves I mean here we are sitting here there's nothing to actually do in this moment, in this time, in this place, there's nothing to do. We've, we've set this time aside to be peaceful, to be contented, to be at ease. We all like being happy and peaceful. So here we are, we've got a lovely place to come together and be peaceful. Nothing to do, no problems, no phones ringing, uh, nothing demanding our attention. But what happens? The mind, the mind goes round and round, visualizing, imagining, and, and we believe in it all. And most of it is completely unimportant. There's almost none of it needs to be needs to be addressed right now. Pretty much all of it could just be put aside and say, "Well, I will deal with that later." But we can't do that usually because we're obsessed with our self-image. Keep going back to it. I mean, okay, come back to the breath, or come back to the body posture, or come back to the meditation object. So we bring the mind back, bring the attention back. And and off it goes again, we bring it back, and off it goes again. And this is this the degree to which we are drawn into distraction is the degree to which we're still obsessed with our image, our self image. And it's really painful, it's a real struggle. And we the, the fear comes up as we as we practice meditation, bringing attention back to the meditation object. Basically what we're doing is we're starving this image. It's like we're not pumping up the, the mannequin anymore. You know, the mannequin of our self-image we're not pumping it up and it starts to get deflated it starts to go down and it's starving and, and we start to get afraid we have all sorts of reactions yeah. if I stop thinking about myself maybe I'll disappear if I stop following my amazing the wonderful creative fantasies perhaps I'll lose my creativity yeah. if I stop following this interestingly stunning, import, stunningly important question I'll never find a resolution to it. Now, these, these are the kind of tricks that our deluded addiction to our self-image plays on us. Traditionally it's called the forces of Mara, the forces of delusion. When we actually make an effort to withdraw energy from our self-image and start to live as ourselves, be ourselves, be one with ourselves, be true to ourselves, be who and what we really are, not living in the image of ourselves, the more we do that, the more these, these resistances flare up. And the more addicted we are to our self-image, the more passionate and enthusiastic these addictions are. And, and this is why it is a real struggle for the mind to settle. We don't want to let go of the image of ourselves. We believe in our self-image. And depending on how much we've invested in it, we, we struggle with letting go. So everybody's different, but if we have enough faith in the possibility of of this practice, well then we willingly endure the experience of being frustrated and, and losing ourselves and 
even getting even going crazy. I mean, sometimes we we can, as we withdraw attention from our self-image, we can become quite disoriented. We don't know who we are anymore. I've heard that many times from meditators. And I've certainly experienced it myself. I don't know who I am anymore. I remember one retreat I was doing, a very intensive solitary retreat, and halfway through this retreat I found myself bowing to the shrine, and what was in my mind was, I don't know who I am, I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know why I'm doing it. But somehow, thankfully, the training had prepared me in a way whereby what I do first thing in the morning is to bow to the shrine, and, and uh, periodically through the day I would bow to the shrine, and, and somehow this ritual of bowing did give me some sort of framework, which was very helpful in helping me endure through this period of disorientation. So withdrawing from living in the image of ourselves to actually returning to a genuine sense of being who and what we are, spontaneous, alive, sensitive and intelligent beings, can be a very tricky and, and difficult struggle. Withdrawing from from the clutches of Mara is what the Buddha called it. He, he said it's like, he talked about, he said it's like a, a fish that's been taken out of the water and left on the bank of the river, flapping around. He said that's what, the, that's what it's like, that's the experience as we withdraw from the clutches of Mara. So as we, as we desist from investing energy in our self-image and come back and being more true to what we are, which is what's happening in meditation, we just come back to doing this one simple thing, focusing on the meditation object, there's a certain experience of, of like dying, actually. It can feel like dying. We feel like we're losing something from one perspective. And that's actually true from the perspective of the image of ourselves. However, from the perspective of the heart itself, and I'm sure many of you will have experienced this, that if, if we persist in the practice and keep steadying attention, keep coming back over and over again with, with carefulness, no judgment, every time we get lost, no problem, begin again, no judgment, over and over again. Just like teaching a little kid to walk. We trust that the little child will learn to walk. We trust the child's got it in them to learn to walk. And each time they fall over, we give them a hand and help them stand up again. And you don't whack a child and say, come on, time you learn to walk. <laughs> that's, that's, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. And that's, it's out of love and respect and care for this being that we offer a helping hand endless number of times until the child learns to walk. And, and this is a helpful image in our own effort to learning to be who and what we really are, truly are, already are, uh, beyond the delusion of our self-image of who and what we are, coming back to live and as that person that we already are uh, can be very difficult. But it doesn't matter how many times we fall, how many times we fall back into self-promotion and self-aggrandizement and, and looking at ourselves and you know, thinking how wonderful we are or how disgusting we are or how terrible we are, how hopeless we are. Whether we're thinking we're wonderful or we're thinking we're awful and we're caught up in it, it's conceit and it's being caught in the image of who we are. We are who we are. We don't have to have an idea of who we are. So as we keep practicing in daily life and in formal meditation, little by little we come back to a, a feeling of as if we endure through the sense of disorientation, we come back to a feeling of, of sentedness or settledness or, or stillness. And, and if we persist with the meditation, eventually 
as those of you that have been practicing for a while will know what it's like when when the mind just drops into the heart and there's that sense of being where we've always been I mean it's not a new place and that's what's so paradoxical about it is it's, it's, there's, there is a there is a, a sense of wow, this is really nice, and yet at the same time there's a feeling of it's not it's utterly familiar. It's the most familiar condition, and this is what happens when we withdraw from living in the image of ourselves and become ourselves, remember ourselves, be ourselves, undivided, who and what we already are. Well, there is this sense of this experience of peacefulness and strength and energy and aliveness and vitality and clarity. And then we get up from the meditation and we feel more grounded and we walk feeling more light and we, the colours on the trees are more bright and, and it's a wonderful experience. And then we start having a conversation with somebody and, and then we, the next thing you know we hear ourselves promoting ourselves and exaggerating our experiences and, and there we are preening our self-image again. But if we can catch it, if we can see what we're doing there, no judgment, I know what that is, and I don't have to do that anymore. And that's a wonderful feeling. I'm not obliged to live in my self-image anymore. We're not going to get rid of it overnight. I think if there was a drug that could take this addiction to living in our self-image away overnight, we probably would go crazy. Because the whole being, the whole nervous system, the muscular system, our thinking, our feeling has to be transformed little by little as we learn to live free from the image of ourselves and it's not something that's going to happen in a hurry. So formal practice, if we have that understanding that, uh, that that's, that's part of the nature of the struggle that we have and, and, and letting go is not always easy and sometimes we do have to endure. But if we don't want to spend our life living with an artificial mobile phone, having artificial conversations sort of thing. If we don't want to spend our life doing that, well, we do need to make the effort to recognize this living in an image of ourselves and to find what it takes to let go. So formal practice can certainly help. Understanding can help. Contemplating this matter in this way can help. Also, it can help, and, and it sometimes does happen, that we just get fed up. Just get fed up with it. It's just, oh, I just just can't be bothered anymore. It's just, it's like it gets worn out. It's just so tiresome, always you know, pretending to have it together, for instance. And if you catch a glimpse of that, of, of how how tiresome it is to always be pretending to have it together, pretending to be somebody who's got all the answers to everything, and just how tiresome it is. Just to really feel that feeling in itself can just bring about a sense of release and say, oh, I give up, I don't know, I just can't. And if we get get that experience of how good it is to let go, well then even you can uh, start making an effort to to, uh, be the other way, you know, (laughs) let everybody see how untogether you are. you make a mistake, just you know, just you know, tell everybody about it. Let everybody see your mistake. And I know in my position in the monastery, I had my 
first uh, privileged opportunity to live as the abbot of the monastery when um, I was about 36 years old and I've been a monk for eight years and that by anybody's standard is far too young <laughs> and uh, I feel sorry for those who had to live with me then and I've apologized since uh, it was very difficult for them and for me uh, however uh, I do remember that it was really helpful when I, I got to a point of, of seeing the struggle of pretending that I knew what I was doing. And uh, it was a great relief just to be able to let it be obvious I didn't know what I was doing, to not cover up my mistakes, to not pretend, to not promote. And, and if one gets a feeling for that, well, this also is quite a effective and way of undermining this or undoing this addiction that we have to living in our self-image. So this evening's reflection, maybe if uh, the image of that poor chap on the telephone in the, car- in the carriage, in the train carriage, if you could take that away and contemplate it, and, and if in your daily life you catch yourself pretending to be something, well, you know, go back to that image and, and feel what it feels like, and then maybe the, the struggle, the feeling of struggle, will be an inspiration to encourage you on your effort to whatever it takes to learn how to stop living the image of ourselves and to be what is already true. I thank you very much for your attention. Mm.